Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you once more from my corner of North Wales, in which each time around, I seek for you listening those tales of dark deeds that I hope will hook you as much as they hooked me. The obscure, the unfamiliar, and hopefully unheard of cases of interest that I've scoured the UK and Ireland for. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the true crime enthusiast cat, Pixie, and he really does have that written on his little collar because I got him one because I'm a soft ass. He's here as he always is, and we're completed by you kind lot, the best true crime fans ever, the enthusiasts that keep the show striving forward. It's fabulous as ever having you join us here today for the episode, which I thank you kindly for doing so, and I do hope that as you have, it's an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, We've had a run of a few standalone episodes of late on the show, and we're building up to a couple of parts that I've already researched and half written. Grass doesn't grow under me, believe me. But after this episode that drops here, I'll be having a week off from the regular enthusiast, because it's Patreon week coming up, and returning following that. As I said before, that's the pattern that we've found the show in right now. On the subject of Patreon, massive thanks go out to both the returning supporters of the show and new supporters and friends D.D. Carter, Gail Shepherd, and My Boys Blue, plus Dizzy DJ and Catherine Yaffe who have edited their pledges and opted to annually support the show. Thank you so kindly all, it's so very much appreciated of you to do so and it really does mean the world. You're all cherished, you really are. Now should anyone like these folks wish to support and get yourself plenty of bonus tales then doing so is an absolute doddle. You simply head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. Always remembering that podcast suffix. And you can't miss it, you really can't. It's got the same show logo and all that jazz. Or you can just always use the ever present link that's in the episode show notes. Quicker than the dial on your electricity meter spins around nowadays, because that goes like a belt-fed wombat, doesn't it? You can be perhaps waiting for a parcel of swag for myself, and certainly availing yourselves of the full series worth of bonus tales available that being a show supporter on Patreon gets you. The dastardly deeds behind tales such as Wicked Beyond Belief, or the Bravo 2 Heroes, the Teddington Lock Towpath Killings, or the latest one that's out, Mr. Whiskers, the Butcher of Cumdy, to name just a few, with a new one in the pipeline right now, and one that's released every month. So, following the past few episodes, in which we've seen affairs, brutal murder, people in freezers, people chopped up, self-harm, lies, loads of sex, and even more blood and gore, I felt it was needed to have a bit of a lighter-themed episode to offset some of that. You've got to have a chink of light in there somewhere. It doesn't always have to be Grizzly Murder of the Week, does it? And so this time around, I've brought what I found a fascinating tale indeed. As I explained in a post on the show's Facebook discussion group only the other day, it had a working title of Some People Are As Thick As Fuck. And as it goes on, I'm sure you'll see why I considered such a name. And we shall get to it momentarily following a short word from the show sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. 
All relationships take work, and none more so than probably the most important one in your life, your relationship with yourself. Sometimes we'll drop anything to go help someone we care about, and we'll go out of our way to treat others well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? If there's something that's stopping you from being that person you want to be, and you feel like you need some help with it, then if this sounds familiar to you, perhaps better help is the solution for you. BetterHelp is an online therapy that offers you video, phone or even live chat sessions with a therapist, a service that's available worldwide and is much more affordable than any in-person therapy and one that in under 48 hours can match you up with a licensed professional therapist that's best suited to help you. Personally, I've found that talking has helped me in my own times of need whenever I've needed to, so should you need to, why not give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. Have you ever met anybody in your life who can come out with what would on paper sound like the biggest whopper of a story you could imagine, but who just have that captivating way of telling something that you can well believe them because they sound so sincere, assured and convincing? More often than not, this will just be someone telling a story to feed their own ego. I think I've mentioned on the show before my old friend Bill before now. He was one such person, definitely, and my other friend Wham, of course. And they do this to make their humdrum life seem that bit more Clint Eastwood. And if people are taken in with it, then good luck to them. There's no harm done, is there? The tale that I'm bringing you this time around on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast concerns one such person. When I get around to describing the tales that the individual came out with, I don't know what you'll believe less. The audacity of the stories, or the fact that these stories had a very, very willing audience of believers. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and offences that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please bear that in mind whilst listening in all. With that then, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled The Devil's 007. In February 1986, Court No. 6 of Maidstone Crown Court in the County of Kent in South East England was host to one of the strangest criminal trials that there ever must have been in British criminal history. A lengthy one lasting some two months, it was also most likely the best example of a wide cross-section of society appearing in the witness box at a single trial, because over that two months, more than a 100 witnesses were to appear ranging in social standing and austerity from an out-of-work struggling dancer to the wife of a Conservative Party senior whip and supermarket heiress. Chuck in a couple of bishops, including an exorcist or two, and several sex workers, and you have the culmination of a right old goon show tale that all centred around one individual, a six-foot-tall, twenty-stone individual who sat in the docks throughout proceedings and treated it like some sort of party, winking and smiling 
at several of the witnesses. No doubt taking consolation in thinking of the high life and good times that he'd had that had gotten him to that position rather than his current predicament. The story begins almost three years before in the spring of 1983 and in the village of Newick in East Sussex. It was to Newick that a balding, paunchy 44-year-old man named Derry Mannering Knight moved with his wife Gwendolyn and began to ingratiate himself with the village's middle-class community as well as attending the local Anglican church there, St Mary's. Before long, he was out and about around the village posting Church of England pamphlets from door to door and organising prayer meetings, having become a regular at church services and Bible studies of which he showed a great knowledge and understanding. Quickly accepted and a familiar recognisable figure in the village, he was over 6 foot tall and more than 20 stone, so he was a bit of a unit. No one in the Newick congregation was aware that their newcomer who'd been born Roderick Trevor Knight, had only a couple of years previously been released from prison after a rape and robbery conviction, and nor that he had other prior convictions for fraud and theft. Indeed, they merely saw him as a down-on-his-luck painter and decorator. And when his painting and decorating business began to founder, it was to the Reverend John Baker, the 47-year-old rector of the Anglican parish, that Knight turned for help from. A sympathetic ear to the new parishioner who had so impressed him, the Reverend Baker listened as Knight complained about the large sums of money he owed, some £12,000, and the vicious and violent debt collectors who were harassing him for repayment. He admitted to the vicar that he'd been born again in jail, in Hull Prison, although it's unclear if he admitted the offences that had landed him there, and where he claimed God had found him, during a riot there in 1976. His sincerity and eagerness to devote himself to his faith must have touched the Reverend Baker deeply, because he took it upon himself to do everything in his power to help his ex-con parishioner. This was demonstrated first in February 1984, when, with his business nearing bankruptcy, and when Knight said he was on the verge of becoming homeless, Knight accepted the kind offer of the Reverend Baker and moved into the attic room of the rectory that the Reverend shared with his wife Alison and their five children. This was, of course, rent-free, after Knight had said he was desperately short of cash, and the Reverend then went further. Described three years later in court as generous in spirit and highly gullible, the Reverend Baker agreed to help by opening an account for Knight at his own bank, and then approaching his wealthy parishioners for donations to help Knight pay off his debts. Overwhelmed, in return, Knight promised to repay such kindness by devoting the rest of his life to serving Christ. So, so far, an act of extreme generosity and Christian duty, it would seem. It was about to go well above and beyond this, however, and it started one night, only shortly after he'd moved into the rectory, when the Reverend Baker, his wife Alison and Knight gathered together to pray. In Reverend Baker's own words, described three years later, He went into what I can only describe as a trance state and was no longer with us mentally. I recognised the state from having dealt with many people in similar states over the years 
as being due to demonic spirit infestation. I took authority over the spirit and bound them in the name of Jesus Christ. Now Knight awoke from the trance having collapsed to the floor beforehand and later they prayed again. But when they did, Knight again went into a trance. Baker continued. There were things speaking out of his mouth but not in his normal voice. This is quite a well-known phenomenon with demonic possession. As we were in prayer, I said something like, In the name of Jesus Christ, I bind these spirits and adjure them to tell the truth and to declare their ground in this man's life. The rector added that when he demanded to know what had happened tonight, a strange voice had replied, that came from night. You cannot have him, he belongs to Lucifer. He was dedicated by sacrifice as a child, and he is a master of the occult. When he came out of this altered state, Baker repeated all this to Knight and asked him if it was true. Yes, Knight admitted it was. For years, he'd been struggling to break free from a satanic cabal that operated at the highest levels of English society, the Sons of Lucifer. Baker went on. I also heard that he'd been cursed by a Satanist maternal grandmother. She'd gone to considerable lengths to dedicate him to Satanism at birth, and possibly even before birth. He also told me that they'd done something to his forehead at that time. He invited me to place my finger on a depression above his nose. Elaborating on his story, Knight revealed to Baker that his family had been involved in the dark arts for 33 generations, spanning some 850 years, and that he had been baptised in human blood by his maternal grandmother Ethel, who was reportedly, alongside being an internationally known violinist who was born in a flat in Windsor Castle grounds, was, I quote, an ardent and avid Satanist and a sorceress in Satanism who had groomed him from childhood to be a great satanic leader. When he was just eight years old, Granny Ethel had informed the young knight that he could enter into communion with the devil himself if special platinum plates were surgically implanted into his skull. These plates were duly installed, and just as Granny had promised, Derry was then able to communicate directly with Satan himself. He even invited the reverend to touch them, pointing to a depression in his skull. As an adult, it was a walk-in then for Knight to become a member of a secretive but powerful order, the Sons of Lucifer, which met at a former air raid shelter, now renamed Roachford Temple, in Hockley Woods in Essex, and which Knight had by 1984 risen to the position of Grand Archdeacon of, which he described as similar to the church position of a roving bishop that he claimed placed him in pastoral charge of the Satanists of the south of England. The organisation had a deep hold on him, but now, Knight claimed, he wanted to destroy his own order from within and rid himself of Satan's hold, something he'd wanted since about 1980. Knight told the rector of two debts that he owed, one to the order itself and one to the chief of Satanists in the area, who was known as Dr. Kaspar. He wanted to pay off these debts so they could no longer hold sway over him, and he wanted to bring other Satanists out of occult slavery by destroying unholy satanic regalia 
that when destroyed would also release about 2,000 other Satanists from the power of the devil. Now, Knight had told him that he could break this hold over him only by becoming the head of the sons of Lucifer, which he could then destroy from within. But in order to be chosen as leader, he said, he would have to prove his worthiness for high office by obtaining their satanic regalia, including robes and vestments, chains of office, a scepter, a chalice, a serpent ring, gold keys, and of course, the devil's throne. All of these, he had added, would be destroyed, said the Reverend Baker. I was told that items of regalia on which his vows were taken would need to be destroyed by fire if he was ever going to get out of it. But the order would not be willing to let him have them for nothing. Reverend Baker continued. The first thing I did was pray. Somehow, a man's soul was poised between life and death on the question of money. I felt the Lord was asking me, how much does it cost to redeem a man's soul from hell? He was left convinced that Knight needed funds, major funds, to free himself from the devil's hold, for he truly believed that Knight was in the grip of Satanism. Understanding now why he'd left Bibles in the attic room where Knight was staying, and in semi-trance-like state, he had attacked them, explaining later. In their rituals, the things that can happen are absolutely unspeakable. You're dealing with people who have subscribed themselves totally to the service of the devil, and who are therefore in a highly structured organisation, in which discipline and total secrecy are generally observed. Put a Bible in the hands of a Satanist, unless it's for occult purposes, and he will rip it to shreds. Now, if you heard such a story involving all this, what would you do? Would you take it at face value, unquestionably, or would you think, hang on a second, what? Let's do a little bit of digging here first. The Reverend Baker was by all means and reports an intelligent man an Oxford-educated theologian and a former army officer, even a talented amateur magician who was a member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians and of the British Ring. So, what do you think he did? The Reverend Baker subsequently approached several wealthy, committed Christians from his parish for help, and by just the following month, March 1984, He'd already raised some £24,925 to pay off what Knight claimed were debts to both unspecified moneylenders and to begin to source the necessary artefacts to rise to this position of head of the order, finding sympathetic ears and deep pockets from the parishioners who sympathised with his own charismatic approach to religion and swayed by the chance not to save just one soul from the devil but as many as 2,000. Within six weeks, by May the 21st, the Reverend Baker had raised a further £18,900, which he paid in cash tonight, who was always in cash, and within another three months, the rector had handed him a further £12,435. And bearing in mind, this is in the 1980s. It's a bloody dear do buying this devil worshipping get up, isn't it, eh? And much more was needed, Knight told the rector. In fact, 
Over the next several months, members of St Mary's Church and other wealthy area residents donated a staggering sum to Knight's anti-satanic crusade. The Reverend Baker succeeded in enlisting Susan Sainsbury, the then 47-year-old wife of Conservative MP and Government Whip Timothy Sainsbury, and a member of one of the supermarket dynasty, one of Britain's wealthiest families, who'd been born again in 1975 into his crusade. After listening to the vicar's plea, she immediately wrote out a cheque for thousands, the first of many. Although she was never to meet Knight in person, she still sent a total of seven payments, totaling some £79,895. She said later, I prayed for Derry and his deliverance from Satan. The advice for my prayers was that I was doing the right thing. Another, the Earl of March, the owner of Goodwood Racecourse, 48-year-old Viscount Hampton, had by the end of 1984 handed over some £5,850 and had chaired a meeting of other benefactors which had raised £2,323. Another evangelical Christian, Mr Michael Warren, a farmer, a magistrate and former high sheriff, gave £36,000 towards the course. Other donors included Lord and Lady Brentford, who had never met Knight, but gave because they trusted the Reverend Baker. All of this money went towards obtaining the artefacts Knight claimed he needed to obtain to then destroy. Then, in September 1984, Knight announced that further artefacts existed that he needed to get, the ones which enabled him to be controlled from afar through the two platinum discs that had been inserted in his forehead a childhood by a Satanist surgeon. By October the 22nd, the Reverend Baker had obtained for Knight another £34,750, which he handed over in used £50 notes, and the following month, on the 8th of November, had negotiated a loan of £25,000 from Charitable Trust P&P Trust Limited, handed over by Mr Gordon Scott, the company director of the trust, who had already handed over £16,000. By February the 14th, 1985, the rector had donated a further £98,500 in used £50 and £20 notes an inordinate sum which consisted of the final payment on an artefact referred to later as item A, which was priced at £55,000, and the rest making up the first payment on an artefact referred to as item B, this first instalment being £43,500, with the balance being due the following month. By the 10th of May, yet another £25,600 had changed hands. Whenever he was asked, Knight would claim to be buying up all the satanic paraphernalia, the trinkets, the talismans and robes, expressly to destroy them in dramatic ceremonies. On one memorable occasion, accompanied by the Reverend Baker, Knight flung a strange-looking golden scepter into the River Thames, and another time, he and the Reverend Baker carried a silver chalice into the rectory garden and crushed it. An action repeated with several other bowls and ornaments that, when crushed, 
will be taken away to be melted down. Though no one but Knight could handle the artifacts or examine them, they were, of course, highly charged with black magic after all, weren't they? Knight explained that some of these items were those that were being used to magically influence him, that were keeping him tied to Satan by sending signals to the plates in his head. Although, bizarrely, no one suggested tonight that he simply get the plates medically removed. I know, right? The other satanic regalia that Knight had insisted he'd use the money to buy, all the robes and all that malarkey, he had stored at an undisclosed location abroad, them being too powerful and dangerous to fetch to the UK to destroy there, he had claimed. And up until then, no one had batted an eyelid about this, not the Reverend Baker, none of his congregants, none of the people who had given so far literally thousands of pounds to save this soul, and no senior figures from the church. But that was about to change. Oh yes. The first person whose spidey sense began to tingle about all of this, well, no, whose spidey sense began to go like a fucking witch doctor's rattle, actually, was the Reverend Baker's superior, the head of his diocese, the Bishop of Chichester, the late Dr. Eric Kemp, who caught wind in the summer of 1984 that congregants in Newark were throwing massive sums of money at what could best be described as a satanic double agent, and he didn't think this sounded quite right, do you think? The double agent thing, well, that's fair enough, he thought. I, I know, yeah, I know. But the donations seemed excessive. Now the spidey sense proper went off big time when Knight himself told Kemp, who thought it was high time that he go to Newick and meet this devil's 007 for himself, amongst other tales that would make your eyebrows fall off, that the figure who had initiated him into Satanism in the 1950s had been a defrocked Catholic cardinal, for as Bishop Kemp knew, no English cardinals had been defrocked, for it would have been a mass scandal, and of course, there's no such thing as scandal in the church, is there, I ask you. After he'd met Knight, Dr. Kemp then asked two Anglican specialists in the occult and Satanism, the Reverend Michael Barlin and the Reverend Colin Urquhart, to intervene, and when they did, and they met with Knight, they were left unconvinced, both questioning Knight's sincerity. Aside from the vocal doubt upon Knight's claims that they expressed to the bishop, they also raised the blatantly bloody obvious notion that perhaps the best way to save someone from Satan doesn't involve the payment of extortionate sums of money for artefacts and regalia, that even Bruce Wayne would have felt the pinch with the amount spunked on this, wouldn't he? And instead, perhaps there was a simpler, much more direct way, like Knight simply embracing Christianity. It's a lot cheaper that too. That's just a thought there. I mean, Jesus is meant to be able to well have the devil after all. Can well destroy him. These reservations of the experts persuaded other members of the aristocracy that had been approached to fund Lord and Lady Ingleby not to make their donation as planned, but, with the exception of Lord March, those who had by now contributed heavily to this cause decided to carry on regardless and had even formed a donors group that would meet to discuss the progress of the operation, much in the vein of a shareholders meeting. Dr Kemp asked the retired Bishop of Aston 
the Right Reverend Mark Green, to attend one such meeting of this group early in 1985 and to report back to him. Now Bishop Green reported the tone unchanged despite reservations and if anything heightened at the meeting to which the two Anglican specialists had also been invited. At the next meeting, which they all again attended, the Reverend Baker produced them a detailed written reply addressing the arguments that had been put forth by the Reverends Barlin and Urquhart, with his wife, Alison, adding a lengthy memorandum on why the operation should continue. Bishop Green subsequently forwarded these documents to Dr. Kemp, who, alarmed and more than a bit concerned for not just the spiritual well-being of Reverend Baker, but his mental well-being also, thought it was high time to contact the police. Sure enough then, on March the 13th, 1985, Knight was arrested and was questioned for two days about the large sum of cash payments that he'd received. Arresting an interviewing officer, Inspector Terence Fallon of Sussex Police, quickly concluded that he was dealing with your stereotypical conman. But Knight was just luckier than the usual ones, having stumbled onto a community of kind-hearted people with more money than Scrooge McDuck and who were so gullible that they'd believe you if you told them you'd been to Old Zealand. And Knight, under questioning, indeed played the innocent. He admitted that nearly two years before, when he was on the bones of his arse, he had asked the Reverend Baker to help him raise some cash to pay off his debts and also admitted that he chatted with him about black magic and Satanism because Baker was, I quote, interested in that sort of thing. He admitted also that he was a Satanist and was buying up artifacts in an attempt to ascend to the head of the order he was involved in to be able to destroy it from within. But he categorically insisted that he'd never asked for any handout. These wealthy people just kept throwing money at him to do so and that is exactly what he was doing, asked the Reverend Baker. Now, although the officer was left thinking that this story stank more than a pair of zookeeper's boots, but was confirmed by all who had donated, no charges were brought against Knight, and he was released on bail. Shortly after Knight was released on bail, the Reverend Baker approached Viscount Hampton, and told him that Knight now needed a Rolls-Royce car, saying he needed to impress the other members of the mysterious satanic order and to dispel any fears they may have had concerning his arrest that would jeopardise destroying the sons of Lucifer, to convince his satanist colleagues that he still had influence, the reverend had told him. Without batting an eyelid, and bearing in mind now this is 1985, the Viscount immediately forked out £37,500 for this Rolls Royce. It's unreal that, eh? Well, there's more. When Knight suggested through the Reverend that, for all intents and purposes, it might be easier if the Rolls Royce was in the Viscount's name, he agreed to do this also. And they must have caught him in an extra generous mood, because when Knight claimed that, following his arrest, police were monitoring his home telephone calls, Hampton willingly gave him an extra £2,783 for a then state-of-the-art car phone to be installed in the Rolls-Royce. Can you imagine it? It must have been the size of Bristol.
The next thing Knight now claimed that he needed to obtain was something called the Throne of Lucifer, a throne that held great esteem and importance in the order that he belonged to, and that was kept by a high-ranking Satanist in a flat in London's Pall Mall. Adorned with who knows what, it was kept on a specifically constructed island within the flat, surrounded by water, and of course, such a regarded and powerful artefact wouldn't come cheap. Knight told the Reverend that it would cost at least £10,000 for him just to be allowed access into the same room as it. The cost of it, but by its destruction would massively weaken the order, was in the region of some £200,000. As the dedicated Reverend Baker set about yet again going cap in hand to the masses, this was finally enough for the Bishop of Chichester. On May the 23rd, shortly before this further £200,000 was to be handed over to Knight for the purchase of the throne, Knight was arrested again and this time charged with theft and remanded in custody. Quite embarrassingly, when court officials came to list the initial hearing before the local magistrates, they found that they had to send to London for a stipendiary to attend and hear it for the chairman of the East Sussex Magistrates Association was one Michael Warren, farmer, committed Christian and the former High Sheriff, who had himself donated £36,000 to Knight's cause. So, if by now you're thinking, well, Derry's been a bit harshly treated there, after all, he's only doing, if not God's work, then good work at least, you should probably stop here, and not listen to the rest of the tale, for I am about to shatter your illusions. Because, any artefacts that Knight had produced for destruction, remember I told you that only he could handle and examine them for safety, were about as real as the Incredible Hulk is. He'd merely sourced any old cups or chalices from several jewellers, sometimes having these gilded or created especially to look ornate, polishing them up and all that, and certainly not at the cost of thousands upon thousands that have been given to source and eradicate these. So, where'd all that money gone? Can you guess? The donations had gone straight into Knight's own pockets, of course, usually manifesting themselves as generous gifts for various lady friends, shall we say that Knight had, high-end car purchases for himself, extravagant and expensive clothing and jewellery he'd buy, and posh parties. On one occasion, in September 1984, he'd even chartered a champagne fueled cruise along the River Thames on a boat, the Southern Bell, that was attended by more than 100 guests, including disc jockeys David Hamilton and fluff himself, Alan Freeman all to celebrate the birthday of Knight's mistress, Angela Murdoch, although of course, none of his Anglican friends who had funded it were invited. In fact, a good deal of the money was ultimately spent on Angela Murdoch, who Knight had been seeing for a number of years, but also on entertaining other girls including Samantha Spracklin, an out-of-work dancer that Knight spent £3,000 in one day in Southend on, as well as Julie Tremaine, a sex worker that Knight funded a lifestyle for for several months. Purchasing sex was something that Knight spent an absolute fortune on, not just hiring girls for sex, 
but also spending money on them after this like it was going out of fashion. He bought one he hired regularly, an £800 fox fur coat, visited another called girl Lorraine Haynes four times a week at £100 per time, as well as asking her to procure schoolgirls or girls dressed as schoolgirls for him, who were each paid £100 to £150 per time for doing so. Other women whom the sexually insatiable knight was involved with included a woman named Angela Weil, who began an affair with Knight and whom Knight spent thousands on, and who ultimately left her husband via a note saying simply, gone away, she sounds a keeper, doesn't she, and resulting in her husband stealing money from his own company to get her back and getting a 12-month suspended sentence for doing so. Another, Jeanette Clahosi, who he spunked thousands on, figuratively speaking of course, received expensive clothes, several pieces of jewellery, and even a bloody jeep from him. All of these women, and many more, would be taken to a special room that Knight had kept for him, generously overpaid for cash in hand, at the Chequers Hotel in Forest Row in East Sussex, where aside from gifts such as these described that he would give, he'd regularly stuff money, usually 20 or £50 notes, into the clothing of girls he'd taken there for sex, offering to be a daddy to them. Ugh. Juliet Bravo. Juliet Bravo. I couldn't resist a League of Gentlemen nod there. If you're a fan, you'll know exactly what I mean. Trust your daddy. When he wasn't spending money on women like it was going out of fashion, Knight would, as we said, buy himself extravagant, expensive and flashy clothing. He had more jewellery than Liberace and Mr. T had combined, and a succession of cars, including a Cadillac, a Porsche, and a Range Rover. In fact, the only cars he seemingly didn't buy in the 80s were the General Lee, Kit, and the 18 van. Knight also took to carrying a fat wad of £50 notes with him that he would use to pay for everything and to tip everyone. He even once gave a £50 tip to someone delivering a bed to his house. And all this came from the bank accounts of the people that, in their minds, were funding him to save his soul from Satan, who didn't get to see a lot for their money, but could treasure the satisfaction of knowing they were literally buying a soul's way out of hell. You couldn't make it up, could you? Telling lies was something that Knight was quite polished at, for he'd been doing it for many years and he loved a bollocks story. Among the claims he came out with to whoever would listen was that he was involved in the record business and owned a recording studio that was used by the pop duo Wham. He was a road manager for bands such as Wham, Pink Floyd and even the Rolling Stones. He'd once been associated with the Cray Twins and that he owned and drove a pink Cadillac that had once belonged to Elvis Presley. But his lies had never before netted him such a lifestyle. Was it now time for him to face reckoning for it? The trial of Derry Mannerin Knight began on the 17th of February 1986 in court number 6 of Maidstone Crown Court, and where Knight, described as a record producer from Dormansland in Surrey, faced 19 charges of dishonesty, 13 of the charges specifying that he, I quote, 
dishonestly obtained property by falsely representing that he genuinely required funds to purchase articles or regalia belonging to or used by a satanic organisation and that he intended to use the monies in the purchase of the said articles and regalia. In total, it was claimed that Knight had obtained some £203,850. £125,100 of this from the fundraising efforts of the Reverend Baker and £78,750 from various others. Knight denied each of the charges and pleaded not guilty to all, claiming that he indeed had used the money to buy and destroy regalia used by a satanic circle he was involved with to free himself from the clutches of Satan. Mr Michael Corkery QC prosecuting, told the court in his opening address that a highly gullible clergyman, the Reverend John Baker, had been convinced by night that he needed money to break his links with the satanic circle, and to buy its artefacts to break its power, proceeding to then tell the court of the entire tale as you've heard described thus far. Following this, Mr Corkery said, so excited was the rector at the possibility of destroying a satanic organisation from within, he was clay in Knight's hands. The rector had been caught hook, line and sinker, and he was used to entice bigger fish into his net. Mr Corkery gave just one example of this during the opening address. There would be plenty more heard from the hundred plus witnesses who would testify during the trial in which the Reverend Baker had approached Mr Gordon Scott, director of the charitable P&P Trust, in a letter to him in October 1984, the rector had asked, Please pray for Derry, he needs a great deal of prayer and divine protection. The rector had managed to successfully negotiate a loan of £25,000 from the charity on the 8th of November 1984. Mr Corkery continued, the date is of interest, for on the same day, the defendant bought a Lotus motor car for £17,000. Mr Corkery also alleged that in a similar example, shortly before his arrest, Knight had conned £37,500 from Viscount Hampton, a parishioner of Reverend Baker, to buy a Rolls Royce, saying, the rector said the defendant needed the Rolls-Royce to convince his Satanist colleagues that he still had influence. So, who was first up into the witness box? Reverend Baker, come on down. He was to spend more than 19 hours in the witness box, spread over six days, in which he told the court that he'd been the rector of Newick since 1973 and had met Knight in the spring of 1983. Describing the scenes I've already told you about, the speaking in tongues of night, his whole story about being raised in a satanic order, etc, etc. Reverend Baker said that after Knight had been given £16,000, he'd produced a chain of office and bracelet used in satanic rites that he and Knight had smashed up in the rectory garden and then taken to a jeweller to be melted down. However, the rector would not describe any further regalia and even said he would rather not write down the details for judge and jury, saying that lives could be in danger if evidence was given in open court about devil-worshipping objects. 
the danger was to the accused, himself and others. There were things too dangerous to talk about, I quote. Instead, he merely described them in the loosest general terms as metal, gold and silver and precious stones, things he wore and in one case. At this point, Knight's lawyer interrupted him and said, My client has reported to me that to carry on now would be very, very dangerous to him and to the rector. The following day, following legal argument, presiding Mr Justice Dennison agreed that they would not go into detail, telling Baker, I bear in mind what you said yesterday. If you feel there's a matter which you can't safely deal with in these circumstances, you must tell me. Baker continued that Knight had told him that the satanic order wanted him to raise money for certain items by blackmail. Knight said he knew a bank manager who had taken advantage, shall we say, of a female client and could be blackmailed for this, which the Reverend had stopped him from doing, reminding him of his earlier claim that all the money for buying artefacts had to be clean, that means given in love by a Christian source. If it was, I quote, unclean, illegal, dishonest or criminal money, the devil would still have a hold on him when the artefacts were destroyed and Knight had later dismissed the idea of blackmail. Knight also claimed that he paid about £200,000 into an offshore investment company run by a fringe Satanist, but the Reverend said that he'd taken a Bible oath not to reveal any details of the company. Cross-examined by Mr Michael West QC for the defence, Reverend Bacus told the court that he was well aware of Knight's dealings with prostitution and was not surprised that after committing himself to Christ, Knight underwent backsliding towards prostitutes and high living, saying, People who have a deep involvement in the occult don't normally get out in one nice neat jump. The deliverance is a process. He denied the prosecution's claim that he was a, a quote, well-meaning yet gullible fool, adding that he had successfully in the past helped people free themselves from the control of the devil. He said the destruction of satanic insignia was a very powerful means of weakening the devil's control and was done usually by fire, although another powerful method was by using seawater. He explained to the court why he'd refused to say what were the vitally important satanic artefacts he'd helped to raise money to buy, and which he referred to in court by the letters A, B and C, saying that the leaders of devil-worshipping sects also led pornography and drug-pushing rings. They were ruthless people with rituals he described as absolutely unspeakable, adding, there is not the slightest doubt that anybody who gets in their way and who starts to divulge things at the top end of the organisation will be shot or disposed of in some way. Baker had even produced a card in court that he'd received containing a Latin message said to be from Satanists and which translated to say Always remember a vow of silence. A very taken in very scared vicar there. The court next heard from one who had funded a large part of the total sum, Susan Sainsbury. Clearly nervous as she sat in the witness box, Mrs Sainsbury, wearing a pendant crucifix, 
said she had first heard about Knight through friends and had later met the Reverend Baker at a London home. She told the court, Reverend Baker told me that Mr Knight was involved in a satanic church and wanted to commit himself to Christ. But in order to do that, certain items of regalia that belonged to the church of the satanic order had to be bought and destroyed. According to the rector, Mr Knight was being groomed to be the leader of this group when this regalia, which had a certain hold on him, would come into his possession and he could destroy them to break this hold. Mrs Sainsbury told how she gave seven cheques, totaling £79,785, to Reverend Baker between July 1984 and the end of February 1985. The final payments that February of £28,000 and £20,000 respectively, went towards the purchase of a throne, which she had been told would cost about £200,000. Although Mrs Sainsbury never met Knight, she had spoken to him on the telephone, telling him she prayed for his deliverance from Satan. She believed in the power of prayer, passionately she told the court, and said it was a powerful influence against Satanism, which she agreed with Michael West for the defence, I quote, was far, far more rampant than most people think in this country. Mrs Sainsbury also said in her evidence, which lasted almost 90 minutes, that the almost £80,000 she gave Reverend Baker for night had no conditions attached, and she did not expect any proof of purchases, saying, as long as it was being applied to buying the regalia, that was alright by me. I believed all along what I was being told by Mr Baker, she said. Less believing was the Bishop of Chichester, Dr Eric Kemp, who told the court he first heard of Reverend Baker's fundraising efforts at the end of June 1984 and had immediately phoned the rector to ask what was happening. Dr Kemp said that the Reverend Baker had explained the situation to him and told him that more satanic regalia had to be bought after he'd already purchased a chalice, a scepter, a ring and other regalia for about £70,000 which Knight would wear while he sat within a pentacle in the satanic temple in an underground air raid shelter in Hockley Woods in Essex. Dr Kemp said, There was a gold piece fitted over his toes and fastened around his ankle. There was also a gold headpiece which covered the place where he had a trepanning operation on his forehead, which had involved the insertion of two discs connected with communication with the devil. There was also a disc, which I was not made clear about at the time, and talk of an inverted cross. Mr Baker told me that when Mr Knight wore these items standing in the temple, he went into a trance and the devil spoke through him, giving commands to other leaders of the order. Reverend Baker had told him later that these items were being kept by a jeweller in Eastbourne in East Sussex, and then that they were with a jeweller in East Grinstead in West Sussex. Dr Kemp said he insisted that there should be some verification that these items had, in fact, been bought after so much money had been paid over, and suggested to Baker that they should see them, or at least have photographs taken of them, which Baker claimed Knight had refused to, claiming the Satanists would become suspicious and jeopardise the operation. 
Dr. Kemp told how he decided he wanted more investigations into this and appointed two people, the Reverend Michael Barlin and the Reverend Colin Urquhart, to look into the matter further. In a document sent to Dr. Kemp, Mr. Barlin told how he was unhappy with Knight's answers to two crucial questions about his commitment to becoming a Christian and reiterated that it was impossible to remain a member of a satanic organisation and at the same time be a Christian. He told the court that the document claimed Mr. Knight described some aspects of Satanism in relation to its hierarchy and various church people, including a Roman Catholic cardinal who were highly active in it and its various ceremonies. Mr. Knight maintained there was a building in London that was headquarters of the organisation and referred to a ring, chalice, sword and throne among regalia that had to be bought and destroyed to release him and thousands of others from the devil's control. Mr. Barlin had added that he had personally carried out exorcism in the past and found the situation with Knight the most bizarre he had ever met. Dr. King had met Reverend Baker on the September 25th to discuss the matter and had here been introduced briefly himself tonight. The next day, Reverend Baker told him that Knight had announced further items of regalia required being bought, including a gold collar, a set of gold keys and a throne, thought to be in the house in Pall Mall in central London, belonging to the head of the order. I was told it was in a particular room in which it was surrounded by water and that Mr Knight would have to pay about £10,000 to enter the room, Dr Kemp said. He said he became strongly suspicious that Knight was playing a confidence trick when more and more money was being demanded to buy more items of regalia, adding, I said I thought it was a very strange thing that Mr Knight should regard himself as so totally dominated by the satanic objects, and I thought that if he really wished to become a Christian, there was a fairly simple way of penitence and committing himself to Christ and receiving absolution. Indeed, eh? Under cross-examination by Mr West for the defence, the bishop insisted that he hadn't discussed the situation with Knight because he'd been told that Knight did not wish to meet him. But this, as we've heard, had led to Knight's arrest. Inspector Terence Fallon testified to the court that Knight had said during an interview, Every time I told him about a debt, he got money. We talked about witchcraft and Satanism because he was interested in that sort of thing. It got out of hand. I tried to back out, but he just would not let me. He and his group had this fixation about destroying the devil organisation, and no matter what you said, they just did not listen. Every time I saw him, he kept giving me brown paper parcels of money. A few days after Knight was arrested in March 1985, Detective Inspector Fallon had arranged a meeting with several who had given thousands of pounds tonight, including Lord Brentford and Susan Sainsbury, where, aside from telling them quite bluntly that they were being taken for a ride, he also told them that Knight had had venereal disease which he gave to two of his wives, he'd left one of them after three months to live with a sex worker, and that the man they thought they were saving from the devil actually had a prison record including five years for raping two sex workers. 
he told the court that he had wanted to show Knight's previous bad character to them. Under cross-examination by Mr. West, he denied he was feeding them the dirt. Mr. West suggested to Mr. Fallon that he had told the donors that Knight was a member of the satanic cult, the Order Templis Orienti, a quote, which dealt with certain sexual perversions. Mr. Fallon said he could not recall this or any mention of perversions, and the matter was not raised again in open court. Knight's bad character, once it was raised in court, however, was highlighted by a steady stream of witnesses, with several of the girls mentioned during the episode appearing to give evidence of his sexual preferences and how he'd spent thousands on them. Lorraine Haynes, Julie Tremaine and Samantha Spracklin were just a few of those testifying, as you've heard and as Knight loved hearing. An 18-year-old dancer named Haley Lee told the court that Knight had sat in his Rolls Royce and asked her to be, I quote, the first person to christen my car and had bought her expensive clothes and jewellery, had paid for hairstyling for her and had once pushed a £50 note down her dress. As Miss Lee gave evidence, Knight smiled and winked at her from the dock. Now she, along with every girl that testified, also told the court that Knight had made no mention of religion or anything to do with witchcraft, black magic or satanism at any time during their relationship. Aside from his penchant for sex, the flashy lifestyle, as we've heard throughout, was also highlighted to the court. Clive Bygrave, then a disc jockey on the line as Canberra and with the Sea Princess, said that Knight had offered him girls expensive clothes and fast cars, I quote, with money no object, as he wanted him to front the biggest disco roadshows the South had ever seen. He told the court that Knight said he knew of a house of young women in Felbridge in Surrey who would, I quote, look after me, continuing. Knight said he had £5,000 in his pocket, which he patted and said I could have there and then. I thought it was a good offer, but probably too good to be true. Some people can smell bollocks from miles away, can't they? Another witness. Mr. Michael Ransby, a jeweller from South End, told the jury that Knight regularly spent hundreds of pounds in his store on expensive jewellery, including rings, bracelets, necklaces and pendants. Mrs. Irene Cranham, meanwhile, a cleaner at the home of Knight's mistress, Angela Murdoch, told the court how Angela had suddenly acquired a £300 sequin jumper, dresses, coats and skirts, and that Knight had once bought Angela a Porsche for her birthday, furthering that he had groped her, and then offered her £50 as a way of an apology. The mind boggles, doesn't it? But I suppose money is no object, if it isn't yours that you're spending, and there's a steady stream of it though, is it? In what was one of the more bizarre moments in an already bizarre trial, the jury was also played a tape-recorded life story of Knight, which even more bizarrely was narrated by his mother Margaret, and in which Knight described how, early in his life, he'd been introduced to evil, describing one night when at age eight he was lying in bed, continuing, 
I saw something standing at the foot of my bed. It was not human. It had the shape of a human being, but no facial features. It didn't have a face or eyes, but it spoke to me, and I was aware very clearly of a voice saying that I was born for destruction, and shortly after that, things began to happen that had never happened before. I was told my life would be full of trouble. No good would ever come into my life, and ultimately, I would be utterly destroyed. I believe what I saw was an emissary from Satan. From that day on, my troubles began. The tape also went on to describe various crimes Knight had been involved in, from shoplifting at age 10, right up to defrauding a Christian out of thousands of Deutschmarks while he was on national service in Germany and which was part of the reason Knight was later dishonourably discharged from the Coldstream Guards. Also, tellingly, very tellingly, I can't imagine you're ever really going to hear such a slam dunk of persuasive suggestion, Knight himself was heard to say on the tape, I want to be a millionaire on easy terms. I like the idea of driving around in a car all day, but not the idea of work. I never found a person I could not part from his money, even if he held on to it like a barnacle. Are you having that or what? So, by day 26 of the trial, it was time for the man of the moment himself to enter the witness box. When Knight took the stand, he made a show of refusing to swear on the Bible before giving his evidence, saying that the oath he had once taken on a scepter one of the items of insignia he claimed he bought to free himself from the control of Satan was of, I quote, far greater importance than this court. He told the court that at age 20, in 1959, he'd been initiated into an organisation called the Sons of Lucifer and had risen to Grand Archdeacon in the order, but refused categorically to give details about his initiation and practices only to say he had taken nine sets of vows, saying, I'm a consecrated priest. I had to be consecrated in order to desecrate. It was done through the Roman Catholic Church, but how it was done, why it was done, where and for what purpose, I'm not prepared to say at all. Within minutes of entering the witness box, however, he asked for the King James Bible. Turning to Acts chapter 19 verse 11, he read to Maidstone Crown Court, And God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body, and diseases left him, and evil spirits came out of him. Knight said that this showed that the Apostle Paul had used the handkerchief as an artefact invested with power to heal people of sickness and diseases, and told the jury, I'm not asking you whether you believe that or if you find it stupid. I'm stating to you that in the Bible that you wanted me to swear upon, a power was invested in a handkerchief and in the shadow of Peter and through the dead bones of a man. And if Christians find it incredible to believe, I understand you're going to find it virtually impossible that in the black arts and occult we have artefacts of metal that are able to control your subconscious mind. Knight's point was that he wanted to prove that the Christian church had artefacts with power, influence and control over people, 
as well as Satanism did. He said he had accepted Christ as his saviour in spring 1984, and I meant it, he claimed, telling how he and his mistress, Angela Murdoch, prayed and read the Bible. Knight said that to buy the satanic regalia to free himself from the control of Satan, he had to become head of his particular satanic order. He had a rival in this, who he named Giles, and who was more affluent than him, and to beat him, he had to have at least an equally opulent lifestyle. That was the reason he drove Rolls Royces and expensive sports cars. He'd explained all this to Lord Hampton, who had given him £37,500 to buy a Rolls Royce, and had told the committed Christians, I don't have horns sticking out of my head. And he said he was only given evidence because of the influence of the Reverend John Baker, Michael Warren, one of the donors, and his own defence counsel. My own preference was to plead guilty and get it over with, he told the court, but added that he was glad he had ultimately taken their advice to give evidence. Knight said that he had in fact intended to repay the committed Christians who had given him more than £200,000 had the police not arrested him. The remaining money was all banked in an offshore account and the satanic artefacts he needed to free himself from the control of the devil were all stored abroad. He had written a letter to all the donors after he'd been arrested and questioned by the police but released without being charged. The letter was received by Gordon Scott and was read to the court by Mr Corkery in which Knight had said that the satanists had told him the police had bugged his house and he had actually known the police movements for weeks, saying, Satanists live and work in nearly every trade and profession. Knight admitted to the court that he had previously studied salesmanship and had used, I quote, his powers of confidence trickery in previous employments. Asked by Mr. Corkery if he had used these powers of confidence trickery to get people to part with their money, Knight replied, Certainly, in my criminal career, but stressing only before he had committed himself to God to free himself from Satanism, adding, I've committed my life for Christ and hereby declare my life to God and intend to leave Satan, but I cannot do this unless I reach high office in the order and destroy the regalia. Knight then told a hushed court under cross-examination that he ran a London vice ring that he described as a very specialised sphere of prostitution and that involved surgical operations on sex workers to turn them back into bona fide virgins for clients of his occult backers. He earned between four and £12,000 a week from this, claiming there is no end of people who want such a female. This, he claimed, was where the money that he'd spent on all sorts had come from, not from the donations of wealthy Christians. Although he would talk freely about some things, in court he even claimed MPs Enoch Powell and the then Deputy Prime Minister William Whitelaw were senior Satanist figures. Knight evaded many other questions by saying he'd taken a vow of silence and members of the order would wreak revenge on anyone who breached its rules, 
adding that he was now marked for death from them. He also foretold of a great evil that was destined to strike the UK in the next two years, and that he alone was able to prevent it. When it was pointed out by Mr Corkery that he had a moral obligation to forewarn people about this, if that were true of course, Knight claimed that he would rather do it himself. In his closing speech, Mr Corkery said that Knight had a fertile brain as a conman who led a vicar like a lamb to the slaughter and that Knight worked on the principle that the bigger the lie the better, saying, at a very early age, Knight found out that Christians were easy game if you played the part of a Christian in trouble. He went on to say that Satanists comprised religious cranks, people preying on the superstitions of others, social misfits, the weak-minded, mentally ill, sexual perverts, the young and the immature looking for kicks, and the evil-minded. The area of supernatural matters is an area full of frauds and charlatans, and you may think the defendant comes into that category, he said. Knight had claimed his treachery to the Satanists had marked him down for death, but he was still very much alive, the court was told, and if what Knight had claimed was true, any self-styled Satanist should be dead ten times over, and not sitting in the dock. In the defence's turn, Michael West admitted to the jury that Knight's story was bizarre, but said the prosecution's case that Knight was a con man was moonshine. Mr West accused the detective leading the investigation, Detective Chief Inspector Terence Fallon, of corrupting several witnesses before the start of the trial, and that Knight had never planned on giving evidence in court and had no need to go into the witness box in this case to be made a fool of. Mr West said, What Knight was doing is not only what Satanists indulge in, but make a fortune out of. This is not a case of someone's life savings being taken by confidence trickster and left penniless. This is a case where the donors had the money, gave the money, could afford it, and wanted to give it, and in the majority of cases, still want to give it, because they think it is the right and proper thing to do. The judge summed up on the 34th day of the trial and told the jury that although the case centred on Satanism, the black arts and worship of the devil, the prosecution was not alleging that Knight was not a Satanist. Mr Justice Dennison said the prosecution had to prove four points. That Knight obtained money which belonged to someone else, that he intended to deprive the donors permanently of it, that it was obtained by telling lies, and that Knight acted dishonestly. He told the jurors that if they took the view that Knight was involved in some form of Satanism, but his aim in obtaining the money was not to buy the insignia, but to support his own extravagant lifestyle, Knight would still be guilty on at least 13 of the charges. The judge also told the jury a question surrounded the judgment of the Reverend John Baker, saying, no one doubts his integrity, his sincerity, or his Christian commitment, but what is in dispute is his judgment. You have to ask yourselves whether he became so bound up in his great crusade that he was prepared to accept everything he was told by the defendant and ignored everyone who expressed a different point of view. 
On the 24th of April 1986, the seven male and four female jurors, one female juror had been excused from the trial on medical grounds and had not been replaced, delivered a unanimous verdict against Derry Mannering Knight of guilty on all charges, finding he had obtained a total of £216,000 split into 45 separate occasions. As the verdicts were announced, Knight sat in the dock, leaning back on his chair with his hands clasped across his stomach, staring at Judge Neil Dennison. Defence counsel Michael West said before sentence was passed that Knight continued to maintain that he was a Satanist, and, in mitigation, he added that despite all the queries raised about Knight's story, the Christian donors had continued over a seven-month period to thrust money upon him and that no senior churchman had attempted to stop them. Some of the donors still believed Knight's story, and were determined to continue to help free him from Satanism. After the unanimous verdict, Judge Dennison said that the evidence had indeed been compelling, telling Knight it had been a clever, calculated, and above all, callous fraud the seriousness of which lies not in the large sums of money involved, but in what seems to me to be a cynical manipulation of Christian beliefs of so many good people. 47-year-old Knight was then sentenced to seven years in prison, while the judge had added, I'm satisfied that somewhere he'll have a lot of this money tucked away. I don't know how much, and I don't know where it is. In the light of that, Knight was also fined £50,000 and told if he did not pay, he would serve an extra two years in prison. As Knight was led away, he looked straight at the judge and said, I will go on worshipping Lucifer forever. I will become the next big religious cult figure. My words will sweep the world. It's a bit of a shit finishing number that there, isn't it? It's no sprosting green or anything. Now, in his summing up, the judge had earlier criticised the Reverend Baker, and Baker, nor any of the Christian donors, who the judge had described also earlier as having more money than sense, were in court when the verdicts were announced. But Baker's wife, Alison, later visited Knight in the court cells with a change of clothing and some cigarettes for him. She said later, He was expecting to be found guilty from about a quarter of the way through the trial but he's disappointed with the severe sentence. She added, however, that it was highly improbable her husband would start a new fund to pay Knight's fines. I bet that it bloody was indeed, eh? On the Sunday after Knight's sentencing, the Reverend Baker joined a hundred parishioners in a prayer for him. The congregation knelt in the Church of St. Mary at Newick as Deaconess Joy Gray said, We pray for Derry Knight as he begins his term of imprisonment. We pray the grace of God will triumph. Reverend Baker said after the service that he did not expect to be called before a church court, as there was speculation that he could face dismissal following the trial, although first, six parishioners would have to lodge a formal complaint against him, and that looked about as likely as me creating a TikTok account. A church warden, Mr. Randall Mannering, said, We are all absolutely behind the rector. 
The Reverend Baker claimed after the trial that Satanists had targeted him and his family, besieging the rectory, following and photographing his family, and were even spreading rumours that he and his wife were splitting up. Dismissing all of this, he said, I know what they're trying to do, and we've stopped them with the power of prayer. It is part of the black arts to take pictures of your enemies and burn those pictures at a ritual. But we are not afraid. Prayer will stop them. However, the stress and furor of the case did arguably break his health, but just two years later, in 1988, age 52, the Reverend John Baker died. After his conviction, Knight's own mother Margaret revealed that she was pleased to see him go to jail, as he'd once swindled his sisters out of £249,000, and had even cheated his own mother out of £80,000 by running up a bank overdraft in her name. 64-year-old Margaret Knight told reporters, This firstborn son has given me a terrible life. He often told me that you can always take Christians for a ride because they won't take you to the law. Jail is probably the best thing that could happen to him. She also told how at one time, Knight was a prime suspect in the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry, saying, It came as no surprise when they thought Derry could be the Ripper. After what he's done to those girls, the only thing I couldn't understand, why wasn't he questioned earlier? Now I'll get on to what she refers to there shortly. Knight was, however, of course not the Ripper, was he? He was still serving a prison sentence at the start of Sutcliffe's campaign, and he wasn't released until 1978. A year after he was convicted, on the 9th of June 1987, Knight lost his Court of Appeal attempt for a reduction in his seven-year sentence when the panel of the Court of Appeal judges said the sentence he had received was, I quote, not a day too long. Knight seemingly accepted his sentence following this, and Baker and his wife still visited him regularly in prison. Even following John Baker's death the following year, his widow Alison continually regularly made six-hour round trips to visit Knight at Her Majesty's Prison Blunderston in Suffolk, where he was serving, and by 1989, reportedly had converted him to Christianity. Surprisingly, that didn't cost 200k. So, who was Derry Mannering Knight? Now, there's little available for researching about Knight. Born in May 1939 in Westcliff-on-Sea, the firstborn of his parents, who were childhood sweethearts, Knight had been a difficult and hyperactive child that it was claimed later in court had needed firm handling, but this had been failed by his father. By age eight, by which time he had two younger sisters, and when the family moved to Kenilworth in Warwickshire, he was an unruly and unpopular child who would often steal and was never destined to set the world alight academically, although he did show some musical ability and was reportedly a talented pianist. His national service, like it was for so many, wasn't the making of him though. He was dishonourably discharged from the Coldstream Guards after 18 months for a variety of scrapes, including theft of equipment, fraud, he conned a fellow soldier out of thousands of marks, selling black market goods to other soldiers, and even going AWOL to play the piano in a pop group. 
By the 1960s, following his discharge, he'd moved to the Yorkshire area, where in 1964 he received a few months prison sentence for failing to pay mail-order debts. He married his first wife Susan in Leeds in January 1967, before they divorced the following year over his use of sex workers. Following a brief spell working at a colliery in Chesterfield in Derbyshire, he returned to the Leeds area, where in September 1974 he married his second wife Joan. He left her after just three months, going to live for a time with a sex worker, and on the 5th of June 1975 was sentenced to prison for a second time after admitting charges of rape and theft and receiving five years imprisonment at Leeds Crown Court. Oh yes. The then 36-year-old Knight had said in a statement to police that his first marriage had broken up in 1968 after he went with a sex worker, and that, quote, After that, a desire to rid the streets of them grew inside me. Sounds familiar, that does, doesn't it? In December 1974 and January 1975, Knight had picked up two sex workers in Leeds, had driven them into the country, had raped them, and had robbed one of them of £12. He told police, I gave them money, then a good hiding, took the money back, then dumped them. But it seemed very much more about the violence with him, as he continued later in his statement. I used to come across some real hard bitches. I used to box their ears to instill fear into them. I didn't have intercourse or take money. I did this to about 20 to 30 prostitutes. Judge Stanley Price told him, One cannot resist the conclusion that, for the protection of the public, you must be removed from circulation for a considerable amount of time. It was while serving this sentence in Hull Prison that Knight later claimed God had found him during a riot there in 1976 when he was sat on the roof with several other prisoners. After this revelation, or possibly because there was bugger all else to do in the nick, he began avidly reading the Bible and was soon able to quote it chapter and verse. He was released from this sentence in 1978 by three years later, in July 1981, had moved down to the south coast of the UK, to East Sussex, where he married his third wife, Gwendolyn, and had set himself up as a painter and decorator. Less than two years later, the balding, paunchy knight and his wife had moved to the village of Newick, and the whole genesis for our tale began. It was East Sussex where Knight was to head back to also following his release from prison in the early 1990s, this time to Eastbourne, and where he died on the 7th of October 2016, aged 77. Absolutely crazy story this one, isn't it, eh? The real puzzle was always the seeming nonchalance with which a group of wealthy Christians were prepared to hand over money totalling more than £200,000. Now the first suggestion was that it involved Freemasonry, and Masonry did have links to a particular group of which it had been claimed Knight was a member. But, when he was faced with the possibility of an expert testimony on this group, he chose not to repeat this claim in court, and so this was discounted. But the real answer is no less intriguing though. 
The decisions to donate such large amounts were taken by these donors in an atmosphere of religious fervour in which they felt themselves to be in receipt of direct messages from God, be in the form of pictures or signs, voices or providential coincidences, known as the charismatic movement. This movement, which was popular among certain Anglicans at the time, gained momentum within the church during the late 60s and 70s, and places emphasis on what it describes as neglected elements of the personal work of the Holy Spirit, and rendered Christians vulnerable to frauds like night, for by focusing on the ubiquity of evil, they had eventually convinced themselves that bloody nonsense things like mind control scepters or telepathic head plates can really exist. They became that obsessed by the thought of evil that they convinced themselves that God was speaking directly to them and giving them injunctions how to deal with it, thus enabling them to help scammers like Knight in the Lord's name. In particular, instances of this could include speaking in tongues or faith healing and the gift of prophecy by which was meant a direct personal communication with God. Reportedly, everyone's favourite supermarket heiress nutter, Susan Sainsbury, was on record as having experienced one of these at a Bible meeting for parliamentary wives of the House of Commons. That was the approach which characterised the meetings that sanctioned the 45 separate occasions on which Knight had received money from them and truly believe in this movement, ignored all common sense, the amount of money satanic artefacts cost never raising any eyebrows, and fanciful claims such as the then head of the counter-church they were setting out to smash was Lord Whitelaw, the then Deputy Prime Minister, that all this was believed without question, or was ignored. Rejecting the suggestion that the church needed new guidelines for dealing with such cases, Dr Kemp said, the guidelines exist, people don't always follow them. The problem is that if someone says, the Lord has told me, then it stops all arguments. Now a new set of guidelines for occult cases were however reportedly laid out in a future report on the Christian Exorcism Study Group, in which making particular reference to charismatic casualties, it warned pastors firmly against spiritual pride and the enthroning of evil. And yet, several of those who had funded Knight's debauchery still stubbornly maintained in the aftermath of the trial all the evidence that was heard and the verdicts that were delivered that Knight had been doing God's work all along and should never have even been arrested, let alone come to trial. One of the most vocal was wealthy farmer and magistrate Michael Warren, who lost £36,000 to this work, but who had vociferously defended Knight from the witness stand at the trial, and warned the court that Satanism was, I quote, very much a potent source of evil in this country. I would have said stupidity was much more dangerous. So, is it possible that Derry Manor and Knight really did practice Satanism with high-level politicians, amongst others, when he wasn't scamming churchgoers? No, of course it bloody wasn't. The mere fact that he had to manufacture satanic paraphernalia in order to destroy it indicates that he didn't have any access to any real artefacts. 
as well as his unverified claim to be a member of the Ordo Templi Orientis, a real occult organisation, which is probably why he chose not to mention it at his trial, because the expert witness would have torn him to shreds. There was or is no known satanic group in the UK called Sons of Lucifer either, and no grand satanic temple was ever found to exist in Palmall, nor anything you could call a temple in Hockley Woods. And as for his claims of high-ranking politicians and cardinals being involved, nope, no substance to any of it whatsoever. Knight was simply, to put it bluntly, a lying bastard, but a very successful one. I mentioned stupidity before, didn't I? And speaking of stupidity, one of Knight's biggest supporters was all-round bellend and professional conspiranoid David Icke, who considered Knight a valuable satanic whistleblower. He said shortly after Knight's conviction, Willie Whitelaw, a chairman of the Conservative Party, was named as a leading Satanist by self-confessed Satanist Derry Mannering Knight at Maidstone Crown Court in 1986. As usual, nothing was done about it. Mannering Knight lived near East Grinstead, one of the centres of Satanism in England. Now these claims that nothing was done about Knight's courtroom accusations against Whitelaw and others are true, granted, but simply because no one, apart from a gullible country vicar, and a wealth of charismatic believers who have more money than sense, found these accusations remotely credible. And if David Icke championed you, well then that's you pretty much buggered, isn't it, eh? I once stood in a queue overnight for record store day, behind two fucking idiots who followed David Icke all around the country, listened to his teachings, and I tell you what, check up from the neck up needed there, no questions whatsoever. I found this one an absolutely fascinating tale and still, after researching and writing it up, there are many things that make me think you just couldn't make this up, could you? Fair play, everyone is entitled to their own beliefs, of course. Fill your boots, believe what you want, believe in Thundercats if you want, right? Up to you. But I'll never get my head around the fact that so many people gave Knight so much, blindly, for such far-fetched claims or other things such as the fact that reportedly Knight's wife Gwendolyn stood by him after all of this came out. In court, she'd even blown him kisses and had passed him cigarettes in the dock. And the Reverend Baker was completely taken in that Knight had mind-controlled discs implanted in his head and he'd even touched where they were. And do you know what he'd really touched? A wart. Are some people really just that good at lying and charming? Or are some people just thick as pig shit, or what? Now, following his release from prison, there's no record of Knight ever having come to police attention again. And reportedly, with the help of Alison Baker, he had found actual Christianity. Do you think that he really had? I'm not too sure myself, but something else that he said following his conviction would lead me to think otherwise. It was worth it. What do you folks think? I would enjoy, as always, hearing any of your thoughts and feedback concerning the tale that you've heard me bring in The Devil's 007, which I hope that you found interesting and informative, 
and which you can do so in the thread for the episode that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or in the group that myself, UK True Crime and Seeing Red share, or through any of the show's social media links really. Bollocks, I'll tell you what, even pay for a Sky Writer to tell me what you think if you fancy, I don't mind at all, I'm always happy to hear from you folks wherever. As I said earlier on, it's Patreon week looming up, so I shall be back on the regular enthusiast following that. I thank you very kindly for joining me and the mog that sleeps like a log today. Bless him, he is proper flat out here right next to me. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe. And goodbye for now.